0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 21. We're looking this evening at Jeremiah 21, verses 1 through 14. With this chapter, we enter something of a new section in Jeremiah. We've just uh, looked in the previous chapter at this uh, soliloquy or personal reflection. Some have described it as the confession, one of the confessions of Jeremiah and his struggle uh, both with the faithfulness and protection of God, but also with his calling and the derision and the scorn and even persecution that that has brought to him. Well, with Jeremiah 21, it, we really come to a part of Jeremiah where the destruction of the city is a given. Much of what we've had up to this point has been warning. Uh, And even now, there's a little bit of that here, but pretty much by this point, the issue is decided. And the question is not, will Jerusalem be destroyed and will Judah fall? But what is that going to look like? And what should God's people be uh, respond? How should God's people respond uh, in light of that? And that really comes through here in this passage. Chapter 21, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher, the son of Malchiah, and Zephaniah, the priest, the son of Masaiah, saying, Inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. And Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who were besieging you outside the walls, and I will bring them together into the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm, in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. Afterward, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah king of Judah and his servants and the people in the city who survived pestilence, sword, and famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. And to this people you shall say, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given... "...into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. And to the house of the king of Judah, say, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus says the Lord, Execute justice in the morning, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, lest my wrath go forth like fire, and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds." Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley, O rock of the plain, declares the Lord. You who say, Who shall come down against us? Or who shall enter our habitations? I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds, declares the Lord. I will kindle a fire in her forest, and it shall devour all that is around her. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes and lead us by your Spirit in our study of your Word this evening. Thank you for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the difference between assuming something and presuming upon something? Some of you probably have been thinking about that this this past week. Others of you, maybe not. But let's talk about that a minute. To assume something is to take it for granted, maybe without 100% certainty, but on grounds we would generally consider to be safe. For example, we assume as we drive over a bridge that that bridge is going to support us. We assume that the driver coming from the other direction on that bridge is not going to swerve over into our lane. We assume when we get onto an airplane that the pilot up front will be able to get that airplane safely to its destination, even perhaps in the dark. We assume those things, even though we know it's possible the bridge may collapse, that it's possible the other driver is texting rather than driving and may swerve into your lane. It is possible that the pilot might be an imposter who managed to worm his way into the cockpit. We assume all kinds of things just to get through each day, and generally those assumptions prove to be safe. Now, to presume can have the same meaning, to take something for granted, but the word has a nuance to it that goes just a little bit further. To presume means to act overconfidently, to assume too much to take liberties with, to take unwarranted advantage of something. For example, to presume upon your good graces, that kind of thing. To presume means to assume more than is warranted, more than you're justified in assuming. What we're talking about tonight is presuming, specifically presuming on The grace of God, that is, taking liberties with his goodness, taking unwarranted advantage of his patience and his mercies. Because that's exactly what is going on in our passage here tonight. And as we study it, just to organize it mentally, you can think of it in three parts. First of all, the king's request in verses 1 and 2. Second, God's answer to that request in verses 3 through 7. And then finally, God's message to all concerned in verses 8 through 14. Well, first of all, in the first couple of verses, we see the king's request. King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. Compliments of Nebuchadnezzar. The last king of Judah. Zedekiah sends a delegation to the prophet Jeremiah, a delegation that consists of two men, a man named Pasher, and we have to be careful not to confuse with the Pasher that we encounter in, in chapter 20, the one who put, beat Jeremiah and put him in confinement. This is a different one. That was Pasher, the son of Emmer. This is Pasher, the son of Malchiah, a different person. And Zephaniah, the priest, uh, the king sends these two to Jeremiah at a request. He sends them to Jeremiah in order for Jeremiah to inquire of the Lord on his behalf. He says, inquire of the Lord. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is making war against us. And so Zedekiah, the king, wants to know the mind of the Lord. What's going on here? What will be the outcome of all this? However, just in case the Lord did not have something specific in mind... Zedekiah would like to hint at a possible suggestion in case the Lord needed a little help. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make Nebuchadnezzar withdraw from us. Well, Zedekiah the king is worried, but he remembers enough from his Sabbath school lessons of how the Lord had delivered Jerusalem in times of old, and specifically, he had in mind an occasion when it was not the Babylonians but the Assyrians who besieged Jerusalem, specifically by Sennacherib, the Assyrian armies, in the year 701 BC, more than a century earlier than where we are now. And you can read about this: Second Kings 19, uh, Isaiah 37. In fact, just read that chapter this morning in my devotion. I'm reading through Isaiah, in that chapter where the chapters where the Assyrians uh, come up to the wall of Jerusalem. Well on that occasion the Lord does perform one of his wonderful acts in answer to the prayers of King Hezekiah. The Lord strikes down some hundred eighty thousand Assyrian soldiers, and in their confusion and dismay they they leave. They return home and forces Sennacherib to withdraw. Well, apparently King Zedekiah is thinking, he has in mind, well here we go again. Here's Jer- J- Jerusalem under attack. Well, it's time for the Lord to show us stuff again. We all know He wouldn't let His city be taken. So, Come on, Jeremiah. What's the Lord got up His sleeve in all this? Wink, wink. That's exactly what's going on here. You inquire of the Lord. Maybe the Lord will do what He's done before. And wouldn't we all like to see that again? Well, the king's asking or looking for help from God. Shouldn't he do that? What's wrong with that? Why would this be considered presumption? Well, here's why. A couple of reasons. First, Zedekiah is calling out to a king that he and Judah have been offending and rebelling against for a very long time. If you've learned anything from our studies in Jeremiah, perhaps you've learned that there's another reason. Something else going on here. Zedekiah is asking for help against a king that he himself provoked into warfare. Because you see, Zedekiah and Judah had already taken an oath of fealty to the Babylonians, to Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon. Well, that itself was problematic. They should not be pledging themselves to other nations, but trusting in the Lord. But the fact was he had done that. Well, then as uh, Egypt was getting stronger and was on the move, that emboldened Zedekiah to rebel against Babylon and its rule to stop paying tribute, trusting in Egypt for help. But that did not make Babylon happy at all. So you really could say that he brought this on himself by, one, making the pledge, and then two, turning away from it. Well, as we look at that, you could see that his brazenness in this really has a parallel with the Christian life, or what might be a sad form of it, or perhaps a counterfeit to the Christian life. And that is to live in our sin, to love our sin. But when trouble comes, to call on the name of God to help us, even as we still love our sin, even as we have no real intention of obedience to the Lord or following him. It means to go on ahead and sin purposefully, intentionally, encouraging ourselves with the thought that, well, God will forgive After all, it's his job. That's what he does. I can sin, but everything's going to be okay because God will forgive me. I remember a woman who wanted to divorce her husband. She said, in these exact words, I know it's wrong, but God will forgive me. She may actually have had grounds for divorce. But... The fact was, she was doing something that in her own heart and mind was sin, and yet she was planning to do it anyway. That is an extremely dangerous place to be. In her own mind, at least, this was something that was wrong. Again, she may have had grounds. This was years ago, many years ago. Um, but yet in her own mind it was wrong, but she was going to do it anyway, which is a violation of what the Scripture says, that that what we cannot do in faith is sin. What is not of faith is sin. It is to presume on God's grace. I can sin, but I know God will forgive me for what I do. Have you ever thought that? Maybe you have. i tell you what. Any time as Christians we sin, knowing what we're doing, that thought is in the back of your mind somewhere. Have you ever thought about if, if the Christian life were set up where it's basically a cliff edge? You mess up one time and it's over. One sin and you slip from grace to hell. You are condemned forever. Would you be more careful to live in obedience to God's word than you do now? Would that make a difference? It shouldn't, but it probably would. Because in the back of our minds, we think, well, but God will forgive me. Even if we don't frame it in those words, even if it doesn't pop up as a conscious thought, it's back there. Maybe God will deliver me again as he has before. Just like Zedekiah was saying here. But how do you know that that next sin will not spark a hardness in your heart that leads you to be hardened against God to the point where you won't repent and you don't repent. We don't know that. Do you see the danger in that? Paul addresses this, of course, in Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? You see, the hypocrite, or perhaps the Christian at his or her worst, thinks to himself, I can sin because I can always go to God later and ask His forgiveness. The Christian, or at least the Christian at his best, thinks to himself, Christ died for my sin, and I died to sin with Him. How can I sin against a Savior who loved me so? How can I commit sins for which jesus died you see that's what the christian thinks at least the christian at his best there's an awareness that i am bought by the blood of the son of god himself and how can i sin against him i'm not who i once was i'm changed i'm different i'm a new creation you see that stark difference to presume on the grace of god that i can sin because god will forgive me The danger there is hardening the heart. The danger there is that may reflect a real misunderstanding of grace versus the Christian and the biblical position, which is, as Paul states it, how can we who died to sin and have a Savior who died for sin still live in it? But Zedekiah's problem wasn't merely presuming on God's grace, but as part of that, expecting God to bail out Bail him out from the consequences of his poor choices. What about those who make foolish choices and then presume upon God to get them out of their difficulty? What if God doesn't bail them out? What if He doesn't make the consequences of their foolishness go away? More often than not, they get angry at God. Why does God do this to me? Why isn't God helping me? You know, Proverbs speaks to that. Proverbs 19, verse 3, dead on. Listen to this. When a man's folly... Brings his way to ruin. His heart rages against the Lord. What brought the man to ruin? His own folly. Against whom does his heart rage? Himself? No. The Lord. You see, Zedekiah had a couple of problems in his presuming on God's grace. That he could sin against God and God would step in to rescue him. That he could make foolish choices and God would bail him out so that he doesn't suffer the consequences. He sent messengers to Jeremiah, inquire of the Lord. He asks very nicely. In Hebrew, these words are very polite and respectful. But the Hebrews' conduct had not been very polite and respectful toward God. Not at all. Not for a long time. And so, in the second place, in verses 3 through 7, the Lord gives them an answer. King inquires, here the Lord answers, and it's a hard answer. The answer has three parts to it. First, Jerusalem and Judah would suffer defeat. Verses 3 and 4, Jeremiah said to them, Go to Zedekiah, tell him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands. At first it sounds good. I will turn back the weapons of war, yes, yes, that are in your hands. Jerusalem, not, not the Babylonians. He doesn't say, I'll turn away their weapons. He says, I'll turn away the weapons that are in your hands, and with which you were fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who were besieging you outside the walls. And I will bring them together into the midst of this city. Now, who does them refer to? Does it refer to their own weapons? If so, it means they're going to have to withdraw from fighting outside the city, into the city, and basically try to, to, to outlast a siege. Uh, it could also refer to the Babylonians, that he's going to bring them into the city, and describing there the, the fall of Jerusalem. Either way, it's a hard answer. Retreating into the city or the enemy entering the city. So he says they would suffer defeat. This isn't going to work. They can't win. They would suffer defeat. Second, the reason they would suffer defeat is because the Lord himself would fight against them. Not only would he not fight to defend them, he himself would fight against them through the Babylonians as his instrument. Verses 5 and 6. I myself will fight against you. With outstretched hand and strong arm. Now there's some irony in that language. I don't know if that's familiar language. But it should be. Because in the Old Testament, that's often how God is described as delivering Israel from Egypt. In the Exodus, Deuteronomy 4, verse 34 Moses, speaking to the people, says, Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, signs, wonders, and war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Again, Deuteronomy 5.15. You shall remember you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Again, Deuteronomy six eight. The Lord brought us out of Egypt, how? With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. With great deeds of terror, signs, and wonders. What does it say here? I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm. You see, that same might that brought them out of Egypt was now going to be at war against them. It's hard when a friend becomes an enemy. I don't know about you, if you follow the Braves baseball at all, but it was really weird to see Tom Glavine in a Mets uniform. It was just not right. And to see that talent used against the Braves rather than playing for the Braves. And all of Anytime you see that kind of a switch in sports, it's, it's weird, it's strange. And yet, in the big picture, it's trivial. What about when it's the Lord who goes from being your friend, your ally, your champion, to being your opposition, your enemy, your foe? That's where Judah was. That's where Jerusalem was. And notice, notice the repetition here. In anger, and in fury, and in great wrath. Threefold repetition, building in intensity. As the Lord fights against his own. They would suffer defeat. The Lord himself would be their enemy. Fight against them. But the third part of his answer is that they would fall into the hands of their enemies. Verse 7. Afterward declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people in this city who survive the pestilence, sword, and famine. And there would be many who succumbed to that. Who died in this siege. Again, Threefold repetition. Pestilence, sword, and famine describing the misery they would endure. But those who survive would be given into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives. And then notice again, "He he shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them or spare them. Or have compassion. You see the triads that are taking place here over and over, which is how Hebrew emphasizes and intensifies what it wants to make uh, strong. The most familiar would be the holy, holy, holy used to describe the Lord. But notice these triads: anger, fury, great wrath, uh, pestilence, sword, famine, into the hand of king of Babylon, the hand of their enemies, the hands of those who seek their lives. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. Over and over, this subtle, yet powerful Hebrew device emphasizes the misery and defeat that they would suffer. In fact, Zedekiah himself was not slain. He was taken. Many of his leaders with him were slain, but he himself was not slain. Rather, his eyes were plucked out and he died in exile. A request, an answer. But then in the third place, the Lord, after answering the request, has a message for everybody concerned here. Look at verses 8 through 14. He has a message for people. Since this is to be so, since the city is doomed, what's their option? Well, verse 8, to this people you shall say, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Now, does that sound familiar? It should, especially if you're familiar with Deuteronomy. Because the way of life was to walk with the Lord, to obey his word, to be faithful to him. The way of death was to rebel. There's an irony here. Because here, the way of life is to surrender to their enemies. The way of death is to continue to fight and resist the will and decree of the Lord. The best they could do to live is to surrender themselves into enslavement to Babylon. A choice. Way of life, way of death, who stays in this city shall die by sword, famine, and pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. It may be that that was a, uh, what's the word, a, a motto or a or proverb. Uh, about those defeated soldiers who return home. Instead of a victory parade with the spoils of war, they're able to uh slink back into the city, defeated, tails between their legs, and yet they did at least manage to escape with their lives. That's the prize of war that they have won. Why? Because God's against them. Verse 10, I've set my face against this city for harm and not for good. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. Message for the people. If you want to live, surrender. Think that was a popular message? Absolutely not. Message for the king. Verses 11 and 12. Who? Well, the house of David. The house of the king of Judah. Say, hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. David. That name is not invoked just incidentally, but to remind them how far they've fallen. To do what? Verse 12, execute justice in the morning. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. You see, it was the king's duty, if not directly he himself, but through his officers, to have those in the city gates in the morning before the heat of the day, to hear cases, to render justice, to defend the defenseless. To protect those who are vulnerable. But as you know, that wasn't happening. But rather, they were being oppressed. They were being neglected. They were being treated unjustly. Why do this? Lest they incur wrath. Verse 12. Lest my wrath go forth like fire. Burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. Message for the people. Surrender if you want to live. Message for the king. To invoke justice. It's possible that Jeremiah had actually given this message earlier, but maybe his scribe Baruch putting this together saw this as a fitting place for this because of the injustice that had been taking place. And the answer was justice. The answer was for the king to do what he was supposed to do. And then a message for Jerusalem. Verses 13 and 14. The Lord is against Jerusalem because of her pride. I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley, O rock of the plain, declares the Lord. You who say, Who shall come down against us? Who shall enter our habitations? You see, Jerusalem had this delusion that she was impregnable, that this was a fortress that could not be taken. You know, the Jebusites, when they held it before David had taken the city, taunted David come take this city if you think you can. And Jerusalem was favorably situated for defense, sitting as it was on a high point surrounded by mountains, valleys. It's a tough approach, except from the north. But it is situated well for defense. But they were deceived if they thought it was absolutely impossible for the city to be taken. The Lord says in verse 14, he will humble them. I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds, declares the Lord. I will kindle a fire in her forest and it shall devour all that is around her. When a city took another city, it wasn't always burned. The conquering city may have wanted the city. But there's a second reference here to fire. Verse 10, he shall burn it with fire. Verse 14, I will kindle a fire in her forest. And that's exactly what happened because Nebuchadnezzar didn't so much want to take Jerusalem for himself as to punish it for its insurrection and its rebellion. The danger that we see here with Zedekiah is a danger for us. The danger is this, that we love our sins, that we live in our sins, that we embrace our sins. But when trouble comes, we turn to God. But otherwise have no regard for serving him. It's the so-called foxhole conversion. The danger is, again, like Zedekiah, we make foolish choices. And then rail against God when we find our life to be difficult. You see, we dare not presume upon the grace and mercy of God. To think that because Jesus died for sinners, that we can sin with impunity, that is, without punishment, without consequences, is wrong. You see, if that's your mindset, you have a huge problem, spiritually speaking. And it may, in fact, reveal an unconverted heart. Someone who doesn't understand, or more importantly, hasn't experienced the saving grace of God in Christ. The good news is this. While we must never presume upon the grace of God, we could always throw ourselves on God's grace. What's the difference? The difference is we hate our sin. Even as we commit it, we hate it. After we commit it, we hate it. But well, we turn from it to Christ, and we hate the sin for which our Savior had to die. You know, there's a certain tension in the Christian life. As Christians, if you are a Christian, you don't want to sin. You sincerely and really do not want to sin. You fight against temptation to sin when it comes. But the fact is, we do sin, and if we're honest, we sin all too often intentionally. Knowing full well what we're doing. But then we Repent. We turn from it. We hate it. We despise our sin. We find grace and forgiveness in Christ. And we purpose to obey the Lord, not go on living in our sin. That's the difference. That's the tension in the Christian life. The desire and even the command not to sin, but the recognition that as long as we are in this side of, uh, this side of glory, that we will sin. John captures it well. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children... I write these things to you so that you may not sin. We tend to skip over that part and move on to the next statement. But let me read that again. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's not teaching a doctrine of perfectionism, but rather the reality of the Christian life, that it is our absolute desire that we not sin at all. I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John recognizes the reality. He recognizes the truth of God's word, the desire of the Christian, but he recognizes the reality, too, that we will sin. We will sin. We will believe the lie of temptation and fall for it and be had. It's going to happen. I write these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who pleads the merit of his blood shed for you and for me before his Father because, as John says, he is the propitiation for our sin. He is that atoning sacrifice who both dies in the place of our sin and satisfies God's justice toward our sin. Never presume on the grace of God. But dear friends, when you are sick of your sin, when you come to an end of yourself, it is always safe to assume that the grace of God in Christ is sufficient to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, two little words, and what a huge difference in our approach to you and to the gospel. Father, may we not presume. Father, may we hate sin. May we fight it tooth and nail when temptation comes. But Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. You yourself experienced temptation far more powerfully than we ever will because You did not once give in to it. But You know it's pull. You know it's power. We thank You, Jesus, that Your blood can make the foulest sinner clean. So that, Father, we thank You that when we do sin, that cleansing fountain of the blood of Christ is there for us. Father, we pray that more and more as we grow in grace, it would be our sincere heart heart's desire, as well as the reality in our lives, that we would obey you and walk with you. But even so, thank you, Father. Thank you for your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.